Hi, this is Carla Jastin, former Border Patrol Class 234, retired Atlanta ICE ERO, and you're listening to Old Patrol Headquarters Podcast. Go BP, go ICE, God bless America. Greetings, and welcome to Episode 9 of the Old Patrol HQ Podcast. I'm your host, Gil Maza. This podcast is dedicated to celebrating and preserving the history, heritage, and legacy of the Old Patrol through the words of those who lived it, with a few shenanigans along the way. Today, in honor of our 45th anniversary of women coming into the patrol, we will be talking with retired Supervisory Border Patrol agent and later Deportations Officer Carla Chasteen out of Class 234. Come listen to a true dope catcher and a hard-charging PA. She is a true game changer and a badass five percenter. Ain't no patrol like the old patrol. Honor first, honor always. Good morning, ma'am, and welcome to the Old Patrol HQ podcast. All right, good morning. Thanks, Gil. It's uh, an honor and a pleasure to uh, be talking to you today and to uh, conduct this interview. I'm very excited to do it. And I'd like to just, uh, oh, let's first ask, you know, how's your uh, 4th of July going? Uh, it's going great. My, my dog's scared of all the fireworks going on. Mm. Yep. And so, I, she's, I know got her, she's got her thunder shirt on. Oh, good. Good. Very good. <laughs> all right. Well, let's, um, let's start out by talking about how you got started in the Border Patrol in the first place. Okay, sure. Uh, I was in the Army. I was an MT, and uh, I was uh, kind of going back and forth whether I was going to re-enlist or not. I'd already had seven years in when I was in uh, New Mexico, and uh, prior to that, I was in Arizona. And uh, I saw these guys out in these green vehicles, and I was out uh, four-wheeling in my Jeep, and I said, Border Patrol, what do you guys do? And... Uh, Several other guys said, uh, well, we do what you're doing, but we get paid for it. <laughs> so I, I was intrigued after that. So every time I went through a checkpoint, any time I saw a board patrol out in the field, I stopped and talked to them and asked them how they like their job and 100% love their job. Mm. And uh, so I, did, I decided that I was going to get out and that's what I was going to do. Excellent. So uh, I... I was able to take the test out in El Paso since I was stationed in uh, White Sands um, Missile Range. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to take the orbital test before I got out. And um, I just waited for the call. Yeah, and then the call yeah. the call came on the, what was the date again that you got the, that you went to the academy? Well, uh, my AOD date was 9-11. So I think I had about two weeks to get down to the McAllen sector. Mm. So, and uh, then we ended up staying down there for quite a while because there was a huge push at the time yeah. uh, and um, some classes that DOD after us went to the academy before us which was pretty crazy but uh, anyway we learned we learned a lot down in McAllen we got to know a lot of the people that were going to be our post academy instructors and the folks we were going to be our journeymen folks we were going to be working with so it was it was a it was a good time so you got to meet all the all the people that you were going to work with, uh, basically before you even start with started the academy. 
Yeah, that's right. We uh, we were down there. Uh, I believe it was like three, three, maybe four weeks. Uh, we helped process. Um, we um, just did some duties around the uh, sector area, and uh, we took tours of our duty stations. So it wasn't all bad. That's good. And what did you th what did you think uh, when you were doing that before you even had to go to the academy? What what, what through your mind was it like? Oh wow! Okay, this is going to be great. Or wow! I was, you know, I mean, was there any surprises? Uh, no, not really. Um, one one thing interesting was they asked, you know, does anybody have any carpentry skills? Uh, what what did you guys do before you came in? Because they were looking for worker bees, and I, I thought that was pretty cool that you know you would get to do other things to like help out your station, you know. Uh, beautify the area, add on to it, build things that you're you that would benefit the station. Which uh, we all thought that was pretty neat, and uh, and and we enjoyed uh, helping out. Yeah, it's interesting that a lot of times uh, the stuff that agents used to do before they became border patrol agents. I know a lot of guys that did computers before then were actually asked to get in and do computer work for the border patrol, or carpentry work, or maintenance work, or you know even. Um, you know stuff like um, uh, welding and uh, you name it. All the all the stuff that they were doing before, they actually got a chance to do it again in the patrol. Yeah, that's right. Uh, one of my classmates, Mark Wester, was really good uh, as far as uh, computers and writing programs and stuff, and he got to do a lot of that in the board patrol. Yeah. So when you finally got to the academy, how how, how was that experience at the academy? Uh, it was, uh, you know, I had been in the Army, and, uh, but the whole PT thing was a, a total difference. Uh, in the Army, I had, uh, based on my age, I had uh, 20 minutes to run two miles. So I really had to get it in gear to make that mile and a half in 13 minutes. Mm. Um, and all of us being there together so long, and McGowan, we really had a really good rapport. We had a lot of camaraderie. Um, there were three females in my class. We all made it. Um, we saw the females ahead of us dropping left and right, and we all kind of made a pack to really help each other. And um, yes. and, and the guys really supported us, too, as far as uh, PT. And then we helped each other on Spanish and, and law. What, 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 was your, what do you think was your major difficulty at the academy? Um... Actually, it was uh, it was the run. Mm -hmm. It was it was uh, it was the PT because uh, I fired in at twenty nine. I turned thirty at the academy. I wasn't the oldest. I wasn't the youngest. But um, the PT that I had been used to in the military was uh, it wasn't lax. I mean, I, I did twelve and twenty four mile marches and stuff with the NTs, but uh, it was just that it was had to move faster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had faster, so I uh, I really pushed myself and and so did my classmates. Yeah, I think for me, uh, you know, uh, the, the usual, right? You go there overweight. Well, I went there overweight and a bit out of shape, and then uh, the immigration law was the worst for me because I'm a native speaker, so I got by real easy on the Spanish, and I just helped my buddies out most of the time. And but uh, yeah, but immigration law was probably my hardest thing. Well, you know, like I say, uh, 
immigrate the only thing harder than immigration law is tax law. <laughs> but uh, and border patrol pay. Border patrol law. And border patrol pay apparently. Yeah, yeah. One of the big mysteries of the universe. So, um, so you, 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 all, you, all the girls and everybody made it through the academy. Um, and uh, so then you reported to your first duty station. And what was that? Rio Grande City, Texas. Ah, okay. So tell me about, uh, uh, well, I, you already said that you pretty much were familiar with the area when you got there. So tell me about getting there and going in now as a graduated agent and how was it how was it for you um it was uh well there was a lot of area that i mean we, we saw we saw pretty much from the highway and maybe a couple of trips down to the river but all the ranches you had to learn all the the ins and outs the gates where to go i i mean those vast ranches you could get lost on those things and uh, uh Learning the area was one of the one of the priorities that our journeyman gave us. Learn your area, and um, because if, you know we were it was the wild west back then. And, mm-hmm. You know, almost everybody we encountered had a gun. All the all the mules running the dope. Uh, there was always a scout or two uh, had guns, or they were running guns north or south, and so you really had to know where you were. So in case you had to call something out, but. Um, I had some journeymen that, uh, I, I was a pretty good shot anyway, uh, but I, my journeymen, you know, were insistent on us being very proficient with our weapons, and uh, back then, you could go out into the field somewhere and shoot, and you could shoot rabbits, and you could put up targets and shoot just about anywhere, and uh, we did that quite a bit, and uh, all of us, um, we... I would say 100% qualification every time. Wow. Whenever we qualified, which you don't find that everywhere. No. And and some of the other agencies, it's like, you know, it's no big deal for like four or five people not to qualify and then have to go through remedials. But um, that that didn't happen in my station at Rear Grand City. Yeah, there, there was no way, even by the time I came in in 96, there was no way they were going to let us go out and, uh, and 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 shoot on our own or practice shooting out in the field on our own. They, uh, uh-huh. yeah, there was uh, there was no way we were going to get away with that. Now, um, who were some of your journeymen when you got there that were uh, that, that were there for you? Uh, well, Andy Perkins was uh, one of my first journeymen. Andy Perkins and uh, Lynn Pasley were my two first journeymen, um, and. Uh, uh, Bill Carmouche was our dog handler. Uh, the 221 had just graduated and got out to the station probably just a few months before us. But actually, they had just passed their 10 month, um, I believe, just before we got there. So they were barely off of probation, and they were some of our journeymen, too. Um, there were three females. Um, when I got there, I was the third female in Rio Grande City out of about 40 or 45 agents. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, they would never let us all work. Well, we only had two shifts back then, but um, they would never let us work together until several years later. But um, anyway, we uh, we uh, 
We had good tournaments. We had several guys there in Rio Grande City that shot competition mm. uh, pistols. Mm-hmm. So, um, like I said, that was one of our big priorities. But um, we had uh, some dirt bikes, um, and uh, we could take those out. And uh, there was no horse patrol then, but there was later on. Right. But, uh, I stuck with the four wheels. Uh huh. And um, <laughs> so a lot of us remember the like the first major bust we had or the first major you know loader incident. Uh, do you remember what you you know uh, or the very first ones uh, incidents that you got into while you when you were there? Uh, yes, um, my first bust was with Andy Perkins. Um, he said, uh, "Let's go." He had a couple of favorite places he liked to go check, and uh, we took. We went down to one area, went down to the river. As we got down, as we drove down, we looked over at this house and like a backfield area, and there were a couple of guys out there. So we drove on down to the landing, we cut the landing and up and down river a little bit from it, and then we came back out. Everybody had dispersed, nobody, nobody around. So we just kind of thought that was odd. So we just kind of got out and looked around a little bit, and and got a whiff of uh, marijuana. Mm-hmm. So we started looking around a little bit more and we started calling out, is anybody out here? Is anybody out here? No, nobody's out there. Um, so we called in, uh, you know, if anybody was in the area, come over and back us up. Well, we ended up uh, seizing about 50 pounds of marijuana and uh, several thousand dollars worth of weapons. Oh, wow. Yeah, we had, uh, we actually had a, I forget what, what caliber it was, but it was a pistol with a silencer on it. Really? And then there were a couple of rifles that had, um, I suppose some kind of aluminum, uh, tacking on it to make it look more expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those weapons were going to be going south. Wow. Yeah, I bet. Uh, when, it, when it lands on our side, we have to wait. 
And of course, we had already told Juan. Juan had DPS backing us up too. And uh, so, got the dope on our side, and um, all the bodies went south, and we got 1,600 pounds. Nice. And that was a that was a nice little bust. Yeah, it sounds for like three, it. For three of us, yeah. Yeah. And so that, is that primarily the kind of work you were doing in, in that area, is uh, catching a lot of dope and uh, and firearms and stuff like that? Yes. Uh, actually, for several years that I was there, I was there from uh, April 89 to um, around August, September of uh, 98. Uh, several years, we were the number one in... Um, uh, dope apprehensions of any station. We were we were always neck and neck with Sulfurious uh, uh, checkpoint. Uh huh. At the Sulfurious checkpoint in McAllen, but uh, and we we caught a lot of dope. Uh, we we used to tease each other. If somebody got two to three hundred pounds, we're like, man, that's personal use, you know? <laughs> yeah. We because we we it was nothing for us to get nine hundred, eight hundred, nine hundred, fifteen hundred pounds. Um, that was that was the usual. That wow. was the usual app. So yeah, yeah. I had a lot of ranches in that area. Ninety nine percent of the population along the river there were in on it. You know, yeah. Uh, grandma and grandpa might be sitting on the porch, but you know they've got a walkie talkie and they're letting somebody know that that uh, the avocados are in the area. You know, so. And the avocados were, some, were PA. That's what they call the PAs. <laughs> yeah. And at some point, we uh, we started using scanners ourselves, and and uh, we we bought we bought them on our own, and we all got them uh, synced up together. So if somebody said check out channel five, we could all go to channel five, and we'd all be on the same channel listening to the traffic. Yeah. And so we would try to pinpoint where they were where they were going to run it, and um, that proved very useful. I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah. Good, good intel like that. I know some of the guys were doing that when uh, when I was working the line, and before I moved to San Clemente, uh, some guys carried just uh, carried portable radios and you can tune in on the on the chatter along the border, and uh, it, it actually was good for, 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 for traffic a few times. Oh, yeah. You know, they just um, kind of spoke in using... Uh, markers and uh, so you would try to figure out okay what you know what green silo are they talking about what bridge are they talking about and try, you know try to hone in on where they were mm -hmm. give, them a, give them a little surprise yeah now what the, uh, how was the uh, working conditions during while you were there you know how was management towards you and and uh, you know that was how was the environment for you um, there were a couple guys that weren't real keen on working with the females, and um, but they they came around because all three of us, uh, Rhonda Winford and Kathy Peters and I, we all we all worked. We got out and worked. We busted our, our butts and uh, did the job. And and I think that we had the respect of the, the guys there, and uh, the managers were were um, were pretty good with us, as far as I know. I mean, with me, they were. And um, uh, the vehicles, almost all the vehicles we were driving were, I mean, you know, when they say 
do the most with the least. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you know, over half of our fleet should have been side, you know, should have been deadline there for several years. But, um, you know, as we started getting more money, we started getting better vehicles, and it was nothing to, you know, you always brought extra water for your vehicle, and then sometimes you even had to bring in some antifreeze on your own because there wasn't any money to buy any. Yeah. So, but we did what we had to do. Yeah, yeah. I know. I think uh, uh, the biggest problems I was facing when I came in was uh, stealing other people's good time radio antennas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah we, uh, we, we even, uh, we had vehicles assigned to us. Um, after, after we go for a care, they would put, would assign us vehicles. So, um, I might be driving a vehicle on day shift, and then one of my classmates might have it on swing shift. So we would we would pull our money to either put in a new radio, or buy an antenna, or put tents on it, or whatever. We would we would pull our money and take care of our vehicle that way. Yeah. So you had to you had to come out of pocket every now and then just to keep just to make sure you had a vehicle that was going to take you out in the field and back and back home again. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so, uh, what um, what did you like doing? What did you enjoy most about it? You know, a lot of guys, a lot of people, they, they start to gravitate to the sections of the patrol they like to do, right? Some people like to do highway interdiction. Other people like to cut uh -huh. sign. What, what 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 did you like? What did you enjoy doing? And what did you you know get good at? Um, I I actually had well several of our uh, journeymen were excellent sign cutters, mm -hmm. and uh, I really like cutting sign. Uh, and we would get on it, and we could uh, we could pretty much tell where they were going to go, and then call the other units in to go up north mm -hmm. and uh, see if they'd already hit where we think that they were going to get picked up. But uh, I really enjoyed the cutting sign and uh, talking to the ranchers. We we had a really good rapport with several ranchers out there. Um, even bought cattle from them and and uh, split it up between us. And, but uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that. <clears throat> yeah, that uh, that's uh, the lifeblood line watch sign cut is a lifeblood of the patrol, I think. Mm-hmm. You know. Oh yeah, that was uh, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. It actually helped me later when I started deer hunting. Um, I went up the first time I went hunting. I borrowed a a, a rifle from uh, one of my journeymen and uh, went up with a couple of friends up south of. Uh, San Antonio, our ranch um, that a friend was managing, went up there, shot my first deer with a doe. I blew out her shoulder, but she took off. Mm. And I was like, great. So um, my friend and I went up to where I shot her, and I tracked the blood trail. I tracked the blood trail, and it had started raining, too. I tracked the blood trail and found her under a bush. And then finished her off there, but um, I said, "Hey, that's 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 my border patrol skill tracking." So they must have thought they they must have thought you were a superhero. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, uh, it was pretty neat. I'm like, "Hey, I blew out her shoulder, but she still took off, but I tracked her down." Well, you know, you tracked her, yeah, yeah. No, no nothing more. Uh, nothing more gratifying, right, than following a set of footprints and then running into what you're chasing. 
it's uh, no better feeling in the planet, I think. That's right. And then after that, no more, uh, I think it was a 270. No more 270. I went out and bought myself a 7 Mag 08, and I never had to track another animal. Well, heck yeah, working, working smart's good too. <laughs> you know? after that. Yeah. So tell me, um, what was your what was your attitude like? You know, you came into the patrol, you got to a station, you got you got to start doing this great work. Was it your was it your goal to just kind of you know become a great agent and then perhaps advance? What 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 was driving you throughout the through throughout the first part of your career here? Well, after uh, after a while, after I got proficient, I got I you know thought I would like to be a supervisor, but uh, you basically had to leave Rio Grande City to get a supervisor anywhere. Mm. And a lot of us stayed there because we had a, uh, number one, we had a lot of freedom. Number two, we caught a lot of dope. And number three, you you pretty much if you're on night shift, you're already going to be acting supervisor. Um, most of the time anyway, mm -hmm. but, um, uh, I know as far as my classmates, most of us stayed there quite a while. Uh, I was there 10 years before I decided to finally put in for supervisor. And, um, but, um, I, I did, um, detail to, um, the board patrol jet, um, twice. I went to Charleston, well, I went to Glencoe, uh, one year, and then, uh, the following year, I went to uh, Charleston after it had just opened. So, um, in 98, I got promoted to supervisor over in Port Isabel. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, two years later, I went to the Board Patrol Academy in uh, 2000. And uh, what was it like uh, to become, to, when you first became a supervisor? Uh, well, I went from... Uh, about us. I think we had about maybe 55, 60 agents by then at Rio Grande City. I went to Port Isabel where they had um, detailers there and it ran three shifts. Uh, they didn't even have enough vehicles to come back to the station. We had to take the oncoming agents out to the field mm. to the vehicle. Mm -hmm. um, we had a, a ton of detailers so um, probably my second or third shift, my uh, APIC told me, go ahead and handle muster. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I had all these salty uh, journeymen out there giving me hell. I said, yeah, just throw me right in the snake pit there, you know? Yep. But, uh, but um, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I tried to uh, lead by example. I tried to give my agents uh, some leeway so that they could you know, we had implemented the exes, so they were all hating that. So yeah. I would go down and take their spot, tell them to go, you know, go ride the river, go check out, a, you know, some landings and chase some cars or run, run license plates or whatever for a while. So try to do that. And uh, I still keep in touch with a lot of the lot of the guys from, from Port Isabel and Rio Grande City. So. Well, well, I will say that um, at least on social media, when I was asking for, uh, I was trying to find, you know, female agents to be able to interview 
for Old Patrol Podcast, and uh, your name got thrown out there. You know, the top actually as a, some of the top names of of uh, uh, female agents that the, the you, by your peers that considered you a, a fine worker, a great field worker, and a great agent on the ground. Well, thank you. That's very flattering. Uh, I, I try to always try to do my best, and uh, I always try to. Uh, be a good partner and, and, uh, and, and a good leader. <laughs> one yeah. of the, well, the best job I ever had, which, which I think all of us say that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was a, it was an honor to be in the Border Patrol. Well, it, uh, it, there used to be a time when, when people used to say, you know, that outside of being a line agent, right, the, the, the nine for life mentality, right, we, uh, you, you, you stay, you don't promote because you want to stay on the line, but, uh, I remember a time when being a first-line soup was the best job in the patrol because you had the best of both worlds. You had to do some admin, but for the most part, you can go out there and work just as much traffic as you wanted. Oh, yeah. I, I, thought, it was a, I thought it was the best job. Um, you know, you, um, you had a little, you had some influence, so you could, you could help out, you know, some of the younger agents. You could, um, you know, help them out with the, their days off if they needed certain things. I had a guy that was divorced and he needed certain weekends off when he uh, when he got his kids, you know, trying mm-hmm. to help, help him out with that and try to help uh, agents get on details as, as they, some some were reluctant to put in for details um, if you, they couldn't do it or they wouldn't get picked or whatever. So, you're not going to know if you put in for it. you got to put in for them. So, hopefully I, I helped, uh, you know, steer them, steer some of them the right way, and and uh, I know some of them are supervisors now, and even even uh, chiefs up in Washington, so hopefully I had a hand in that. Um, I, I, of that, I have no doubt whatsoever, and I'll tell you that um, I... Uh, you know, I, I respect my supervisors, and uh, but there's a handful. There's a handful of them that I would do anything as a, as a line agent, as a ground on on the ground board basic board patrol agent. Uh, there's a handful of them that I would go through hell and high water for without no questions asked, and you always know who those are. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And yeah, um, I agree. I agree. And it sounds Straight to me like here. you yeah. were one of them. You know? Well, I'd like I'd like to think that. Uh, <laughs> I know I had a, a few leaders that you know, just like you said, you would uh, do your best and and give one hundred twenty percent for whatever they needed. Yeah. Uh, you know, I did want to tell you a couple things that um, that happened to me um, or happened, and I was in the moment. Uh, mm-hmm. One of my partners, David Romalo, um, he was actually one of my journeymen. But um, we were laying in um, once out west of Rio Grande City. We were hoping to get a dump load. Um, we'd been checking this one area and saw a lot of fine. There was no sensor in the area, so we thought we'd lay in and maybe we'd get lucky. All of a sudden, we heard something loud, almost like an explosion. Hmm. And we're like, what in the hell? What? And we were kind of ducking down because it, it just seemed like something was going to, you know, explode and, and come out on us. We saw one of the space shuttles come back into the uh, atmosphere. You're kidding me. Uh, they said 
I think that that was the shuttle. And I said, it very well could be, because by the time we could see something, it was just a red flash, and it was going down the river, I mean, following along the river, going east. So, the next day, he made it a point to look it up and see, you know, what time it came into the atmosphere. He said, that was the shuttle we saw. Oh. And we were just like, wow, that's a once-in-a-lifetime Yes. Yes. That had to be quite a sight. It was really something. (laughs) And then uh, another time, I had gone up several times with our pilots. I'd been up in the helicopters. I'd been up in the the fixed wings. Um, When we changed over to Air and Marine, and they had the really nice, you know, helicopters, um, I went up with them uh, one night to show them some certain areas that we were watching. And we looked up through the glass through the top of the helicopter and we saw Hades Comet. And the pilot, co-pilot, and I were just like, oh my gosh, that's Hades Comet. Because we knew it was, we knew it was going to be out, you know, and so all of us had been watching for it um, on the ground. But uh, to see it from the helicopter <laughs> through the glass and the top, it was just amazing. That had to be incredible. Beautiful, beautiful sight. So yeah. let me ask you, so, you know, as, as working as a female agent and then getting into management with, uh, as an SBPA, did, um, did being a woman uh, uh, cause any type of different uh, of obstacles or any kind of issues with you? You know, everybody has a different experience, right, in the patrol, especially uh-huh. the female agents. And, you know, a lot of them right now are going through different types of situations and issues as the patrol be- is still evolving and progressing and trying to figure, I think, figure its identity out in the new world. But... Um, uh, was there anything in, in, in your experience that uh, that that uh, because you were a woman? Um, there were just little comments here and there, but um, I never stepped back from a fight. So mm. uh, you know, if someone said something off collar or off color, um, I let them know that it wasn't appropriate. Um, you know, I had been in the Army for seven years, so yeah. I, I went through all that in the military. And um, so when I was in the Border Patrol, and when I was in the Border Patrol, when I started, you know, throughout my career, even into supervision, if uh, someone said something, you know, I'd tell them, you know, it's inappropriate, you know, I don't want to hear that again, or you can be written up for that. Um, and I never had... I didn't have many problems just here and there. So the army, the army kind of gave you a bit of a thick skin coming in, but you, but you basically didn't stand up for it. You didn't stand for it. No, you can't. I mean, you know, the the waters get tested. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. especially for a, a new female agent coming in, the waters get tested. How are you going to be? And uh, you know, I mean, I can listen to some guy talk up to a point and then there's certain things I don't want to hear and you just let it be known you know that's the line you don't cross it mm-hmm. and um, and on the other hand once you once you set the line you can't cross it either so if you're you have to have the same respect 
you have to have respect if you want the respect in return. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you went so, from, you, you, you ended up getting promoted to supervisor. You went to the academy. What did you teach at the academy, by the way? I was a law instructor. Ah. And, uh, and then I got cross-trained um, in um, driver's training. Got my certificate as an instructor there. Um, at some point, they wanted us to all be cross-trained in two modalities. So I had the law and, and driving. Oh, great. I, I, I'm whining about immigration law to a law instructor. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> try, try, try instructing or try teaching it and trying to keep everybody's attention, you know? Yeah. I mean, by that time, I had uh, 12 years in, so I had some stories to go with the law. Yeah. So I think that made it easier to learn, you know? The reason you need to know this is because you're going to find yourself in this situation on detail and at a checkpoint, um, which at one point I was on detail at Kingsville. We, won, we went on the bus. Um, there was a white kid, young guy, sitting in, in the seat, and he has a gym bag next to him in the seat. And I, all I did... I was talking to him, hey, how you doing? I'm like, this guy's, you know, out of his element. And pressed down on the gym bag, and it was hard as a rock. I said, is this your gym bag? He said, yes. And I signaled to uh, one of the senior guys there at Kingsville. Mm -hmm. I was going to bring this guy off. And um, they opened up, he opened up his bag, and it was loaded with dope. Had about 12 pounds of marijuana. He was from Indiana, which is where I'm from, mm. and he had gone down to Mexico, bought some marijuana, was going to bring it back to Indiana and make a bunch of money off of it. <laughs> he was about 20 years old, and his mother was the uh, president of a bank. Oh, wow. And he was freaking out. That, that case didn't go to the Supreme Court, but another case did. And now you cannot press on a bag on a bus yeah. bus check yeah. without uh, without uh, consent or search warrant. But at that point, we were able to do it. Yes. Well, well he opened his bag. He opened his bag when we brought him off. So, so it, was, uh, it was pretty much consensual up until that point. Yeah. You know, yeah. and you know, I'll tell you one thing that uh, I, what I do remember vividly at the academy is, uh, you know, in the midst of all that instruction, the parts that I that I personally that would perk up my ears and wake me up were the war stories. Oh yeah, and I think that's true, probably for most of us. Yeah, probably so. Um, and lucky for me, um, well, we're at Rio Grande City. We had a small checkpoint um, up north of uh, north of town. Um, but, uh, we didn't have a lot of traffic, but we did, you know, have a little, I was working there, uh, once I went out and asked this, uh, driver, he was driving a, uh, a semi, well, it was like a tanker, I guess. The name of the trucking company was marked off and I asked him, 
you know, where are you coming from? He said, Brownsville. And I said, where are you headed to? He says, Dallas. And I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> so I call my partner. I actually had two partners in the trailer. One's a dog handler. He comes out, dog alerted. The guy, had, the guy didn't even have enough scope to cover the cost of the, of the vehicle. And he barely had um, maybe four, 400 pounds, maybe, or less. Uh-huh. But uh, he, he didn't know the area. He was just taking some back roads, and somebody had drawn him a map, and uh, he was way out of his way to go from Brownsville to Texas, or to Dallas, going through Rio Grande City. Which is a big red flag. So, <laughs> yeah, it was a big red flag. <laughs> yeah. And so, but, from, yeah. from the academy, uh, what did, what did you end up doing after you left the academy? Well, I was at the academy um, in two thousand five when everything moved out to Artesia. Mm-hmm. Um, most of us were trying to jump ship. Most of us, uh, well, I won't say most, but there were quite a few of us that didn't really want to go out there, and um, I wasn't able to get hired onto anything else. But um, so I went out to Artesia. I thought, well, I'll go. Um, go out there and see what happens after that. But uh, so I was out there for seven months. Um, there was basically no infrastructure. You know that was all, that was a big political move by Dennis um, uh, DeCancini to get the Portsmouth Academy out there. Mm-hmm. But um, there was basically no infrastructure. Um, people in town, homeowners were moving to trailer courts outside of town and renting their houses out to agents yeah. because they were making $100 a day um, renting them to us. Yeah. So but pretty soon after we got there, um, we started building a lot a lot of housing areas. And, and uh, actually, there was a Walmart. There wasn't even a Walmart there. And... Uh, before I left in December of 2005, they they had built a, they were building a Walmart. It wasn't even open yet. Mm-hmm. But but uh, so I applied to a few jobs and I ended up getting a job with fugitive um, operations for Atlanta ICE uh, ERO, mm-hmm. and uh, so I worked that for a year and then I then I went on the docket and became a on the detained docket, so I was in Atlanta until I retired in uh, June 2015. But uh, the training that I had in Rio Grande City with um, airing houses with the uh, Drug Task Force and DEA and uh, Marshals um, really, really uh, gave me a basis for that uh, fugitive ops um, job. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you're going to people's houses, you know, you're, they've got warrants out, and they're not wanting to go back to their country, so it was, um, it was pretty dangerous going into their, into their houses, and we usually had maybe five agents with us. Yeah. So. So you were actively, uh, you were actively serving warrants? Yes. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, we were, uh. There were a lot of Jamaicans, um, 
there were a lot of uh, Haitians, a lot of Cubans, uh, well, United Nations of people around Atlanta. I mm -hmm. mean, from any country, basically any country you can think of. Um, and one that kind of surprised me, a lot of Somalis are there. And uh, these people are, you know, they're convicted felons, they're deportable, but Somalia won't take them back. Uh, there's a lot of Vietnamese that we could not, we cannot send back to Vietnam. I mean, we're stuck with them. Yeah. And, and that's what, in the Border Patrol, you start the A-file most of the time. You start the A-file, mm -hmm. and then as a deportation officer, you know, I saw the file. I saw a lot of files that, you know, McAllen agents or McAllen sector agents started. And, uh, and then these guys, you know, you saw the progression of, of the criminality of the, of the aliens. And, uh, and then now they're deportable. So some of them you could take back, some of them, some of them you couldn't. And so... Country you wouldn't take them back. So because they refused to take him back, we were literally stuck with them here. We're stuck with them. They're out. They're out walking among us, and uh, we would have them report in, depending on, you know, the last time they got arrested. I mean, because yeah, some of them they just keep on. I mean, it's like, dude, you know, they know nothing's going to happen to them, so they just keep on with the criminality and. Yeah, most of them we would have them come in every six months, so they're reporting in, but that's it. I mean, if they don't come in, then, you know, it's not much you can do. You, you put out a warrant or a bolo form or, you know, attempt to locate or whatever, but um, they know they're not going back to Somalia or Vietnam or Laos or, or wherever, you know, Russia, a lot of Russians. Yeah, it's just amazing that the country, those countries can actually refuse to take him back. Well, in Mexico, it does the same thing. They could, they literally can make up any excuse to not take their own citizens back into the country. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They just say, uh, you know, we can't find any information on mommy. You know, what are we going to do? We can't. There's nothing we can do. That has to come from the State Department, which I guess there was a lot of going back and forth about, you know. Stop giving them so many visas and stop sending money to the same countries that refuse us. Yeah. Yeah. I remember one time I took I took this guy that was fifty one fifty to to the port there and uh he was acting, well, he was acting 5150 because he turned out not to be, but he wouldn't answer the guy's question. So the dude looks at me and says, I can't, I'm not taking it back. He's crazy. So I looked at him and I said, So you're a psychologist now? You're you're a doctor? And she he goes, No, he goes, but, but I'm not taking him back. So I looked at the guy that I that I had that I had in custody, and in Spanish I said, "Ya calmate, güey, dile la verdad." And um, he goes, "Si, sí, señor." And then he just tells him his info, and in he goes. But you know, they could have refused him just because he thought he was nuts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if uh, you get to the airport, I mean, you you know, the government's already bought the tickets. We've already got a. And, and we had to get a travel document for the alien that we were taking back to their country. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, and they could, you know, that's what they refuse. They don't give you a travel document, but we could, you know, it's two or three agents that, that escort them back to the country. We get to the airport, get to the side of the plane, and then they refuse to get on. So, 
It's just an EKV. You can't force them on because the pilot will throw everybody out. Yeah. Or or you get on the plane and the guy starts going crazy or starts yelling or screaming or the female and the pilot tells you to get off the plane. Yeah. So you have to get off and go back to square one. But you uh, you had an you had an advantage uh, that you got to see how these files originated on the border with us with the border patrol and then work their way through all the way to to, de to uh, deportations and then see the final outcome, which most of us on the line never get to see. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. Uh, a lot of times I would, if I knew the agent that, that actually wrote him up the first time or, you know, along the way, I would shoot him an email and send him a picture and say, do you remember this guy? Because it was a, might have been a, a memorable case. And uh, I said, he's going back to, you know, uh, El Salvador, or he's going back to you know, Honduras or, or wherever, and, um, you know, tell them the rap sheet. And even um, there were several that, you know, started out as, as young kids that we, we would catch on the border. And, you know, tell half the time in Rivian City, you caught kids, you took them over to Whataburger, bought them a burger and a Coke or whatever, and, and, then, and then took them to the bridge or... Um, like uh, one of my supervisors told me, whenever you get a get a young kid, you know, go buy him a hamburger and a coke, and tell him, you know, to talk to you in Spanish, and and, and you know, you're not you're not embarrassed for a, a little kid, you know, to be talking to you in Spanish, and you ask them, you know, what does this mean or whatever, <clears throat> and uh, that that really helped my Spanish a lot uh, as far as conversational Spanish, but. Uh, you know, you, so you saw those young kids, and then they progress through the gangbangers, and they get all these tattoos, and then they, you know, get really hard, and, and it's just kind of, it's kind of interesting to see that. Yeah. And uh, so I would, I would let some of the agents know, of course, we saw that just on the border, too, a lot of times, but, uh, yeah. Uh, how long? They, they all seem, they all seem interested when I, when I told them about their, their outcomes. Uh, yes, just like I mean, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to hear. And uh, how long did you do deportations officer work before you retired? Uh, I was in Atlanta just over, um, let's see, probably about nine years. Just over nine years, actually. Okay. And, you, and what? Yeah, I, I did. I did everything in the office. I did the fugitive ops. I did uh, cap. I did uh, detained and non-detained docket. Mm-hmm. Um, the only one I didn't do was the, uh, well, I did help them out, but I didn't actually uh, do the ankle bracelet. Um, I think of what that is right now. It's part of CAP, but uh, I, I did help them out with that, but I, yes. I didn't actually, uh, wasn't actually on the tracking, doing the tracking. So you put as much fire in, uh, in, in, in doing your deportation work as you did in the when you were in the Border Patrol. I did. I really, uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed working with the different um, agencies. I, I worked over at uh, Cobb County Jail up in Marietta, Georgia. I worked with their uh, 287G program for probably the last uh, three years. And uh, what year? So, then you, you retired as a deportations officer when? I retired uh, June 30th on 2015. 2015, man. I went, a, I, went a, I went a year before I was mandatory, but uh, I was ready. 
uh, my friend Pam Reeves had retired a year before. She'd been in the Border Patrol, and uh, she retired a year before. She tried to get me to retire with her. I said, well, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. <laughs> but by April, or by June of the next year, I was ready. Um, you know, the uh, administration uh, policies were basically uh, let them go if they don't have a, uh, uh, you know, a serious conviction. Even if they were, uh, an alien was arrested for DUI, we had to let them go. Mm-hmm. Uh, 287G, we, we couldn't keep a detainer on them because uh, they didn't have a conviction. And it was, uh, it was getting pretty frustrating letting everybody go. Well, I hear that a lot from a lot of people that I've interviewed and talked to, a lot of the older agents. They said when the policies started to change and things got so lax and so complicated and now you couldn't even uh, get your job done, a lot of them actually pulled the plug as well. Mm-hmm. Well, ma'am, as, as we wind down, um, is there any advice or anything you'd like to share with the current uh, uh, women that are in the patrol now? Um. Well, I know there's a, a lot of a lot of choices out there as far as um, the ATVs, the horse patrol, the honor guard. Mm. You know, it's great to see so many women on the honor guard. Um, and you know, uh, like I said, I'm I'm proud to be a veteran. I'm proud to be uh, retired. Um, well, former border patrol and retired ICE. I'm I'm proud of my career. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say um, always be proficient with your firearm. That's your tool. Um, you know, you don't want to be be in the need, be in the moment, and, and not sure of yourself. Yeah. Be sure of yourself. Be confident. I mean, I think that officer presence is, you know, 90% of what's going to happen. You know, do they know that you're confident in what you're going to do? and Or are they... Do they think that you're unsure, and then they're going to try to jump you. So um, be proficient with your firearms. Treat everyone, you know, with respect. You never know when you're going to see them again. And trust me, as a former ICE officer in a biggest city of Atlanta, there were several people that I saw that were released from custody out in the public. I don't know how many times I heard mm-hmm. officer test team, just test team out in public, and it had, was an alien that had been on my docket or that I had spoken to at one of the jails or detention center. And uh, actually, one guy um, we had gone to a deten- to a jail over in Alabama, and my partner was over talking to some of his people. He wasn't paying attention to me, and I had two or three people. Well, probably three or four people on my docket that I was talking to. One guy from Guinea, you know, who are usually very physical, got up in my face and started asking me, when is my flight, when is my flight? And I told him, you know, I'll I'll talk to you in just a minute when it's your turn. And again, he came towards me, and I started to take a defensive move one of the other aliens that, um, you know, was on my docket that I was talking to stepped in, stepped up to him and, t- and told him, she told you she'll talk to you in a minute. Have a seat. Mm. And so he, he sat down. Um, by then I 
think my partner looked over at me, and I was like, uh, you know, but I, I told the guy, you know, thank you. It was a guy that his mother was dying of kidney uh, failure, and I had let him use my phone before, treated him with respect, and he stepped up for me. So I, uh, I would say, you know, maybe if I hadn't been humanitarian to him, that maybe that wouldn't have happened, and, you know, might have turned out different, but, um, like I said, you, you might run into these people again when you're out in public, so you never know. Yes, yes. Well, ma'am, um, I uh, want to tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to do this interview. Uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure on my part, and just to listen to you and to the uh, fine work you did in the beginning and how you carried yourself as a as not only a, just a female agent but just a border patrol agent throughout your career like I said uh, your peers all speak very highly of you and uh, you know I think that a lot of us men and women in the patrol are going to be inspired by uh, your story well thank you very much Gil I really appreciate talking to you and uh, I appreciate what you're doing well thank you Gil patrol Yet, uh, ain't no patrol like the old patrol, right? That's right, no old patrol. <laughs> thank you, ma'am. Well, you take care. God bless, and uh, and um, thank you again so much for honoring us with this interview. Thank you so much, y'all. Don't be This concludes our interview with retired supervisory border patrol agent and detentions officer Carla Chastine. By all accounts, a fine PA and a hard-charging alien and dope catcher. A happy 45th anniversary to all our female agents who are true warriors and game changers, and the patrol would not be the same without you. Come browse through our Old Patrol HQ store at oldpatrolhq.bigcartel.com for some amazing products that you can wear proudly honoring the history, heritage, and legacy of the patrol with a few shenanigans along the way. If you listen on Apple or Google Podcasts, please give us a short but raving review and five stars so we can climb up that corporate food chain. Ain't no patrol like the old patrol. Honor first. Honor always.